Welcome to Query, where we provide simple answers to complex tech questions. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, who is safe and sound at home, no longer in a ho- on a hotel balcony, Serenity Caldwell. Hey. Hi, Stephen. How's it going? It's good. It is good. I can't believe we recorded only a week ago. I don't know about you, but keynote weeks, whether it be Apple or Google, like it's just so much stuff, so much work to do. It really feels like a lifetime ago already. Yeah, it feels like there was a month of time compressed into those seven days. And mm-hmm. uh, this week's going to be equally exciting because we've got launch launch times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, iPhone 8 and 8 Plus and the Apple Watch are all uh, delivering starting on Friday. I have an in-store pickup for a watch uh, uh, Friday afternoon. So exciting times. You did it right. You did it right. I uh, I ordered mine to come delivered, and uh, now I'm I'm not going to be here, so that's be <laughs> tricky. I've never. We'll see how that works. I've never done the in-store pickup for a pre-order deal. Um, I really did it because I was going to be in that the Apple Store is a little ways away from me. I was already going to be in that part of town. I was like, well, I'll just go do that this time instead of you know waiting at home or like signing and sticking a tag on the door, and then you know that's complicated. So it's fun. I like the in-store pickup. Um, yeah, and don't forget iOS 11 and macOS High Sierra. Mm-hmm. Or no, excuse me, iOS 11 and watchOS 4. Yes. High Sierra's coming out later. Uh, hey, Sierra. That's uh, the tw- Hey, Sierra. The we'll see you later. Yeah, I think, yeah we're talk- I think we're talking about High Sierra some next week. But this week, we have a great question from Chad. And uh, this is a question that kind of stands apart from the, the news of the last couple of weeks, uh, which is a nice break. And Chad asks, what is a good way to learn Markdown? So before we get into that, I thought it'd be helpful to kind of explain Markdown. So you have different types of markup language for text. So you can style a sentence with like bold or italicized text in something like HTML, but it's a little clunky. You've got to do like open brackets and close brackets, and it looks like code, right? It it is code, and it can be hard to do, and it can be easy to make mistakes for for beginners who aren't real familiar with it. And Markdown... So, so Markdown, invented by John Gruber of Daring Fireball, it is a markup language for plain text. It allows you to style text, add links, make outlines, and much more by using simple characters like asterisks and brackets. So you don't have to do like open angle bracket, B, close angle bracket, and then again, but with a slash in it. It's just asterisks and underscores and parentheses. And if you learn it, you can mark up your text and it'd still be human readable. So you could send, you know, you could send your uh, your significant other an email written in Markdown, and because a word is is surrounded in asterisks, that would be italicized. But we, as human readable, it, it kind of makes sense that that word stands out, right? That it's highlighted somehow. So it's really, uh, really helpful that way. So s- some simple examples: you can put a single asterisk. Uh, before and after a word, and that makes it italicized, like I said. If you do double asterisks, it makes it bold. And if you need to make a list, you can just do a line break and then do a dash or an asterisk and do you know your first item in your list and then hit return and do another little dash or asterisk and that's your second item. And that would be really clunky in HTML, but Markdown makes it really fast, uh, fast and easy. So Stephen, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. How long have you been using Markdown? Oh gosh, uh, years at this point. I mean, I to a point where so I, I carry around like a paper notebook in my pocket just to do grocery lists or like take notes to edit a podcast. And even in my paper notebook, I write in Markdown. Like it is just the what? way that I think about, 
about text now. Uh, I've been using it for, for for years and years. I don't I don't even know how long. So I have a question about this. Do you uh, do you like write URLs down with brackets, or are you just <laughs> using kind of like asterisks and underscores? Yeah, asterisks and underscores, and uh, you, so like to do like an H one or H two, like different levels of headline. I use the pound symbol, so like I, I use that to start a new note. Um, and it just makes it really easy to read, and and all my so like everything I write for my website or for show notes or for my freelance work, it's all in Markdown. So it just sort of spilled over into real life. That sounds made me sound like a crazy person now that I explain it out loud. <laughs> I'm just it's so funny to me because I love Markdown and I've been using it since 2010. Basically, when I started writing for MacWorld is when I first heard um, about Markdown. Other than that project that John Gruber was working on. Uh, and I started writing in it, and I love the fact that you can, you know, write with uh, pound signs. No, they're not called hashtags, young people of America. They once had a different name. Uh, side note, I heard a really great story uh, about an intro to coding class where someone was like, oh, hey, we use hashtags in this language. And I'm just shaking my head in, in terror. Anyway, pound signs. Um I really like that you can do this in basically a plain text uh, app, mm-hmm. and even though technically the Notes app on on OS on macOS as well as iOS is not plain text, but I use it as plain text and I write in Markdown there. Um, I really like that, but I'm still having trouble visualizing using hashes to write headlines when you can just write bigger text, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> you have the power to write bigger text on I'll, the page. I'll, I'll scan a page. Uh, I'll scan a page and send it to you. All but, right. Uh, yeah, all the, right. the plain all text right. is really what's great about this. You don't have to use an HTML editor. You can just use notes or you can use the Stickies app or text edit. Yeah. But mm. there are some like special markdown editors. Do you use any like markdown apps? Or you just use notes. Yeah, um, you know, I used OneWriter for a long time, which has Markdown features, um, and I really liked that. Uh, there are a bunch. Is it Ulysses has Markdown, right? And Bear has mm-hmm. Markdown in it. There are quite a quite a few. I just honestly, I stick to the note to writing notes, or sorry, to writing Markdown in the Notes app and augmenting it with Text Expander, um, with just common Markdown shortcuts because I just. The Notes app has very easy iCloud syncing. It's probably the most reliable uh, thing in iCloud for syncing. <laughs> and I've personally never had it kind of F up. So I really enjoy using it. However, uh, I definitely see the appeal of writing in things like Bear. You know, I, I think they're, I think it's a really, they're really nice apps. I just, there's something, I think I, I had a bad experience during a beta with OneWriter, and it's totally not OneWriter's fault. It's the problem of running iOS betas. Uh, but it was a really, you know, kind of scarring experience where I lost, like, a 2,000-word article because of a sync error. Oh, yikes. <laughs> and, and after that, I was like, you know what? I test enough beta software. Maybe I should just stick with hmm. with Notes, because I know that Notes, notes is syncing is probably solid enough in betas that Apple's not going to ship it where you you lose information. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Again, I want to I want to emphasize that was my problem, <laughs> not OneWriter's. OneWriter is a great app and if you don't run beta software all the time, uh, that might cause iCloud drive errors or files app errors now I guess in iOS 11. Definitely check it out. Yeah, so I use Byword on the Mac and I use just a a series of apps on iOS depending on what day it is. 
And what's nice about it is I can write in Markdown and I could copy HTML out of it if I needed to. Most of these apps will do the conversion for you. Although if you're publishing to the web, so like 512 Pixels runs on WordPress and my WordPress install can take Markdown. And so I just publish Markdown to WordPress and it comes out HTML on the web. So if you look at my database on my website, it's all in Markdown. Uh, but if you're looking to learn it, there are a couple links in the show notes. Uh, John has a, a nice syntax page on Daring Fireball that kind of outlines um, how how it all works. I do think it's a li- that, that's a little intimidating to beginners, so I'm also going to have a link to markdowntutorial.com. I found this last night, and it is like a, a step-by-step, like, how to learn Markdown. And if, if you know Markdown, you know, talking about learning it may seem sort of silly because it really is pretty simple, but it can be, to learn anything new can be intimidating. And uh, I think this tutorial website does a really nice job at, like, breaking it down and kind of getting someone started. So hopefully hopefully that's helpful. If you do writing on the web um, or, you know, if you have to, to deal with this sort of stuff, it's just, it's just nice to be able to, to write with asterisks and underscores and parentheses and not have to think about, like, proper HTML. We can just kind of do it all, and it's very natural. And I just write it as I go. You know, I don't, I don't go back in and do it later. Just as I'm writing, I'm formatting stuff as I go, and I find it, I find it really fast. Yeah, I I really enjoy Markdown, and I've been very very grateful to have it for the last as I said seven years now. Mm-hmm. And while I don't go as far as writing it down in paper, uh, well, I actually, you know, I will say I have I use asterisks for for italic and bold. See? I do do See? that, and that's that makes sense to me. <laughs> Pound signs do not. Uh, so if you want to be cool like Chad and have a question answered on the air, you can submit a tweet. You just use the hashtag AskQuery and our little robot will see it. We're actually going to talk about the little robot we use a little bit later in this episode. We have I've had a bunch of questions on how I do that. But we take all sorts of tech questions. Hashtag AskQuery. Question number two. Um, uh, Lewis asks, how does iMessage work? And before we get into this, I had put a couple things in the show notes and then I went and I came back to the document before we hit record, and sort of you had put in like a, a <laughs> I don't even know like a novel a novel, a novel. on iMessage. <laughs> so I'm just going to sit back and let you uh, tackle this because I think it's a I think it's a really important question to understand the security that's inherent to iMessage. Yeah. So um so Lewis, when when I got Lewis's question, um uh, initially I could just be like. You know, here's the overlying thing. iMessage is, you know, built on Apple's push notification architecture and it sends messages securely. Uh, but you can basically read the overview of that on Apple's iMessage uh, just straight page. What I really find interesting is all of the mumbo jumbo that goes into making iMessage work and furthermore, making messages not conflict on differing devices and the work that Apple has done uh, to make it so that if you have an iPhone and switch to an Android device, uh, your iMessage, arc- your former iMessage architecture doesn't get all messed up, which it used to in uh, iOS, I want to say eight yeah, or so. It, there, it was was a, there, there was a, a huge problem. Yeah. Do you remember what happened, Stephen, where it was just uh, people were switching or like had an Android device and then they forgot to deregister their iPhone? It was like a it was like a bad Photoshop license, essentially. (laughs) Right. Where like this is maybe this is uh, this is old school. But in, you know, when when you got a new Mac before the the days of, you know, easily updatable uh, software and moving your apps over with something like an app store, um, you had to deregister your computer as a licensed Photoshop computer. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then when you, if you forgot to do that and you tried to install Photoshop on the new computer, Photoshop would be like, you can't run this computer. You don't have a license for it. And then you have to pray that you deregister, like that you still have the computer and you can deregister it and you didn't wipe the computer. Because if you wiped the computer, then there was no way to deregister. It was it was just bad. You had to call Adobe. Um, so uh, a similar thing, pausing for, gar for a garbage truck. A similar thing kind of happened with iMessage in like iOS 8, iOS 9 world where people were moving to Android um, and not deregistering iMessage, not basically with their old iPhone saying, you know, turn off iMessage. Uh, so they weren't, they were getting uh, text messages from other iPhone users that just disappeared into the void because the iMessage architecture grabbed it instead of uh, the traditional SMS. So maybe that's a good place to kind of talk about how iMessage differs from SMS. So SMS is kind of built on the carrier infrastructure, and I'm not going to go into that a whole bunch because otherwise this podcast would just be all encryption and numbers and cell towers. Uh, so uh, just we'll, we'll just say in one in one corner lives the SMS architecture, which is controlled and built um, through the cell carriers. Um, and that was originally made, of course, for very short messages, um, 140 characters or less, I believe, which is actually where Twitter get, got its original limitation, and then that was increased slightly. Um, and on top of the SMS architecture, there's an additional thing that the carriers use called MMS, multimedia messaging, which was built to be a bit more expansive uh, when you start sending more uh, data-heavy messages, like uh, pictures, for example, or videos. Uh, so the carriers had this, and it, that allowed them to basically like charge by the message because you were technically using, you know, this this separate network. Uh, and when Apple created um, the iPhone and started thinking, well, how how can we make messages better? Especially when when they started thinking, well, how can we make them sync to our iChat program? Uh, they started building this iMessage architecture. Uh, and at the heart of iMessage is APN, which is Apple's push notification architecture. That's the that's the cloud-based service uh, that allows Apple to send you notifications about like CNN stories or when it's time to take your pills or what you've gotten from Gmail or this uh, ping that I just got now from uh, from Slack uh, or Instagram. Uh, all of those little notifications that you get uh, are based around APN, Apple's push notification architecture. So iMessage is part of that too. Um, it uses the APN uh, mostly to send and receive text messages as well as all of the other push notification things. Um, and the way that iMessage works through that is unlike uh, the regular push notifications, which can kind of just be sent to and fro if they don't contain any sensitive data in them, iMessage is end-to-end -end encrypted. So it's encrypted locally on your device. Then there's a separate key that's encrypted in the cloud that talks to that encrypted key. Then there's a third bit of an encrypted key that does the handshake uh, with the receiving device. So there is no possible way that Apple can decrypt your messages while they're midstream because essentially they would need the keys from both devices. So the only like they would need not only the central key in the cloud where they kind of do that handshake, but you'd need I think you'd need the key from iPhone number 1 that you're sending it to to iPhone number 2 or you know, iPad number two. So you need all the devices in the same room and you would need, it's, it's very hard. And you need a, you know, an encryption program that could break 1280 bit 
key encryption. Which, <laughs> which most of us don't have laying around. Yeah, I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm not up to date on my hacking, Stephen, but uh, I feel like 1280-bit key encryptions are a little challenging. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, I think that's the big thing to emphasize about iMessage is that... Um, Apple doesn't log any messages or attachments um, in the cloud, so there's no like we've we've talked a little bit I think about iOS 11 and iMessage for iCloud is coming later in iOS 11, but again the way that that's going to work is full end-to-end encryption. Um, so currently, as of iOS 10, Apple doesn't log uh, messages in your iCloud account uh, or in a central server anywhere. That's going to change slightly in iOS 11. I don't know the like super details on that. So we'll just, we'll set that aside for now. But like currently Apple doesn't log anything. All the contents are end-to-end encrypted um, and there's no way for Apple to decrypt the data, which is, which is pretty great. So how does all of this magic encryption work? How do you know when you type, you know, if I type my friend Steven's name into iMessage on my Mac, how does the computer know that A, Steven also has an iPhone, B, that, or an or an iMessage account really, because it can go to an iPhone or an iPad or a Mac or what have you, um, B, that Steven can currently receive messages and doesn't have, say, a deactivated account, um, and C, how does it send that data? So when you first type in a name, so if I, you know, I type in Stephen Hackett in the two fields, um, iMessage actually makes a, a slight call. Uh, so essentially, when you once you've turned iMessage on, you create an, an, an a couple of encryption keys. When you first enable it, that's when you type in your username and password. Okay. Um, the and the private keys for that uh, live in your iPhone's keychain, and which is basically iCloud keychain. So it's uh, encrypted and synced to your iCloud account. Uh, the public versions of those keys are sent to Apple's directory service. So Apple has this directory service full of anonymous public keys um, that gets associated with your phone number or your email address or whatever you've registered iMessage with, along with the push notification address for your iPhone. Okay. Uh, so think of it like a giant phone book, basically. Yeah. Add additional devices. So I've done that on my iPhone. Let's say I, you know, I, I register my Mac as well. Those create separate encryption and signing keys, APN addresses, etc. And they're all added to the directory service as well. So instead of, you know, if it was like my my anonymous name in the directory service and then anonymous device one, it's now anonymous device one, anonymous device two, anonymous device three, etc. Um, phone numbers are verified not just by APN, but they're also verified by the carrier network and the SIM card that you have in. Um, so there's an additional level of verification if you're using a specific phone number. Um, and all of your other devices let you know if, uh, if there's going to be a, a new device registered, right? You, everybody's seen those notifications like, Serenity's iPad is now using iMessage. And that's to prevent people from basically logging into your iMessage account um, and compromising it right. for you. Yeah, it's a little flag of, hey, this is going on your account. You should be aware of it. Exactly. So um, going back to talking about writing messages, right? So we have all of these anonymous database entries in, in the Apple phone book in the sky. Um, and Apple, obviously, Apple can't see, can't, Apple can't look and say Serenity Caldwell is this. What Apple can do is if, you know, Steven decides to write in a message to me and he starts writing in Serenity, right? Um, 
Apple first looks in contacts and it looks for the name, right? And if it can find the contacts name, then it gives you a set of either email addresses or phone numbers that it knows are registered with iMessage uh, or SMS. Um, if you don't have my name in your contacts book, then it won't it won't return anything because, like I said, Apple doesn't keep actual people's names in the directory. Right. It's all about these these public and private keys. Uh, so Steven's able to type in my name because he has it already in his phone. Now, if Steven doesn't know my name, uh, which is going to be disturbing because we do a podcast together, but <laughs> let's say that let's say that Steven knows my name, but he just doesn't have my phone number in his address book. Uh, so instead, he do, he does know my phone number, and he's like, gosh, I should probably add Serenity to my address book at some point. But for now, I'm just going to type in her phone number. So he types in, you know, 555-555-5555. Very common, I know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and once he's finished typing that in, um, the iMessage server, or uh, basically iMessage sends a ping to that anonymized uh, directory mm-hmm. and says, hey, here's, you know, here's uh, user A, in this case, Steven's public key. And Steven, you know, the, the public key that is Steven wants to send a message to this number. Does this number exist? Right. Okay. In, yeah, in there. And when it's there... Um, when when uh, the database says, yeah, this number does exist, that's when you get the lovely, like, blue message that says, hey, you can send this person an iMessage. If it can't find that phone number um, and, or it gets a, a pushback from, uh, from say, the, the carriers and it says, oh, hey, this is a phone number, but it's not an iPhone, then you get the green number. Um, and if you get if you try and type in a phone number or an address that's just not associated with anything, that's when you get red, right? You just get a little a red a red thing. All right. So after all of that handshaking happens uh, between you know your device and the directory and the potential for the other person's device, then you actually send the message. Um, and when you send the message, that message is individually encrypted for every single device that has access to iMessage. So even though you're sending that you know, that that message on your iPhone, they all, uh, Apple servers also get an encrypted version for your iMac, for your iPad, for your other iPhones, for your Apple Watch. Basically anything that can receive messages gets a separate encrypted message because as we learned earlier, all of your devices have different encryption keys. Um, and during this process, there's a whole bunch of like, uh, there's an 88-bit value key that gets generated from the sending device, um, then uses an HMAC SHA-256 key to construct a 40-bit value, um, that which, and then that 40-bit value is basically made up of the sender, um, aka you, as well as the receiving public key and the original plain text of the message. So you combine those two things together and you have a 128-bit key, uh, which then encrypts the message using AES. Uh, And then all of that is done again on the receivership side to decrypt. Uh, Basically, it's a lot of encryption, Stephen. Um, I'm, I'm probably doing a terrible job at this because my job, <laughs> my my job in life is not a security researcher, as you as you might have guessed. <laughs> um, hmm. 
I mean, and I think the I mean the big picture here is right that these things are encrypted with keys that are on the devices. Apple does not have those keys, so Apple can't you know log into their servers and and read your iMessages. It means that the government can't read your iMessages. That it is truly end to end encrypted with keys that no one has except the device that's in your hand. Exactly. And then they use Apple's push notification structure to send them around, and the APN is already comfortable with encryption. So uh, basically, iMessage is a crazy, crazy secure system. Um, I didn't quite realize how much it was until I really dug into this. And if you want to dig into this, um, Apple has their iOS 10 um, security guide, which has uh, even more on how iMessage works and how all of these keys shake hands with each other if you're interested in that sort of stuff. And probably Apple will soon be putting out their iOS 11 security guide, um, which will talk a little bit more about how iMessage will be synced in iCloud in later iOS updates. So there's lots of lots of interesting stuff to dig into if you're if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, the the last thing that I essentially I just want to talk about is how Apple knows that it's um, that you're sending to an iPhone and not an Android device. We mentioned that repository, um, mm-hmm. but if you have a an iPhone and then you switched over to an Android device, um, there's now a really easy link which we'll put in the show notes to deregister your device from iMessage or your phone number or your you know, your email address. Um, And I just, I highlight that because I don't think uh, Apple has done a super great job of just explaining to the average consumer, like, hey, here is a thing that if you're switching phones or you're switching out of the Apple ecosystem, you should do this. Uh, So it it is available. It's actually really easy. Again, it's it's literally just a, a web form, an encrypted web form. Um, so we'll put that in the show notes for people who are curious about that sort of thing. Attachments, images, like all this stuff is happening behind the scenes. But I just I like that just as an end user, I know that I'm secure and that all this math and all this computer, like hardcore computer science that they're doing is is making sure that, you know, my messages are are safe and sound. And built on top of that in a very Apple way, I can use it for many of my devices, my Mac, my iPad, my phone, my watch. And that the, like, I as a user don't have to really think about all this stuff going on um, behind the scenes is pretty cool. Yeah, I just, I just know that it's end-to-end encrypted. Um, and if I want to dig into the stuff, Apple makes that available, which I find really awesome. You know, the fact that I was able to find all of this information, uh, essentially, just by looking at the security guide is uh, really, really awesome. And I'm, I applaud Apple for doing that. I wish more companies would do that. Same. So let's, uh, let's get into the speed run. So Michael writes, when looking at the storage tab of About This Mac, what is system storage and is there a solution to decrease its size? So the system, in air quotes, is a really broad label on the screen. It describes the operating system, its various components, a bunch of a bunch of files and stuff that the operating system needs. Uh, I'll put a link to Apple's support page about this. You really can't do anything about it. Like the system takes up the space that it takes up on is different per system. So like on my iMac, this is a lot bigger because I have a lot of um, like pro apps installed that put a lot of stuff in the system library folder and that gets counted. If you are low on space, which I think is kind of the the feeling behind this question, 
I really like a third-party app called Daisy Disk. It does similar things to the About This Mac screen, but in much greater detail. So you can really see where your storage is being taken up, what folders and directories are taking up space on your disk. But like I said, leave the system and library alone. That's that's kind of the Mac's, uh, Mac space to play. You don't, don't need to dig around in there and get rid of stuff, or you could render your system unbootable. Yeah. I, I usually was like, just don't play with that section. Just avoid it. All right. So Roger asks, how does the LTE Apple Watch, do I have to sign up with a carrier when I buy it? And why can't I roam? That is a great question, Roger. So the LTE Apple Watch is a little bit different from your iPhone in that, you know, you don't have, uh, your iPhone comes with something like 20 some odd bands of LTE that you can use in various locations around the world. Um, the Apple Watch, being that it's much smaller, uh, really only comes with about, I think, uh, six to ten LTE bands, depending on region. And there are actually six different LTE Apple Watches. There are three for each size in different regions. Um, and each of them has a different array of uh, LTE and UTMS bands to connect to uh, your carriers. So that's basically why you have to buy it on a per country basis right now and why you can't roam because quite literally you may not have the bands inherent inside of the LTE Apple Watch. There's also a question about battery life um, with LTE, uh, with roaming especially. Roaming can be a, a real nasty battery killer on the iPhone and given the Apple Watch is already limited battery life, it's entirely possible that they're like, hmm, Maybe we, you know, maybe, maybe we wait until we have the battery situation a little bit more figured out. Uh, but in any case, uh, it kind of sucks that you can't roam. It's a, it's a really, you know, it's a tiny limitation. Um, but it's, it's because the Apple Watch is, is really tiny. And uh, to answer your first question, second, you do not have to sign up with a carrier when you buy your Apple Watch, um, unless you actually go through a carrier store, which I never recommend. Um, you can just buy the Apple Watch as is. You don't have to set it up with data when you set it up with your with your iPhone. And in fact, I should note that unlike the iPad, the Apple Watch, you don't buy your own data for the Apple Watch. You're literally just adding your Apple Watch to your existing iPhone plan. Uh, so if I want my, you know, if I want my new Series 3 Apple Watch to live on my, you know, to, to use my iPhone's AT&T plan, uh, I just set it up whenever I want. And if I don't want it to use my LTE plan, then I just don't set it up. Um, I can't set it up on, say, T-Mobile without my iPhone also being on T-Mobile uh, because of the way that the plan sharing works. Because you can't set up your own plan for Apple Watch. Uh, you can't buy a plan from a different carrier. I would imagine all that the roaming and the carry stuff will get better over time, oh, right? Yeah. Like it, it got better with the iPhone over time. The iPad is in great shape with the Apple SIM. You can just move around. It's really nice. Yeah. I think, I mean, for for first gen, I'm more impressed at all of the stuff that the LTE Apple Watch can do uh, just in its native home country. And while it, you know, I'm a little disappointed that I won't be able to use it, you know, when I'm living in Canada because I don't have a Canadian SIM, uh, the bands are the same between the U.S. and Canada, so I'm kind of hoping that that'll be a software update or something like that. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Um, but yeah, yeah, it'll. I, I think it'll get better as Apple continues to refine the watch. 
Totally. So last question for you, Stephen. Jared wants to know, how do we collect our Ask Query tweets? And I kind of know this, but uh, I'm going to have you explain this because I'm actually really curious. Yeah. So every week, you know, we remind people that they can ask questions with the hashtag Ask Query. And we see them all on Twitter. I'm not searching for those in TweetBot. Like, I don't have a safe search or anything. Um, I use a service called Zapier. Although you can do this with um, uh, If This Then That, IFTTT, as well. Zapier gives you a little more control and I already pay for it for some other reasons that are not related. So I set it up with Zapier. Basically, the workflow searches Twitter, I don't know, every 10 or 15 minutes for that hashtag. And if it finds a new tweet with it, it puts a bunch of the details of that tweet into a Google sheet that both uh, Ren, both you and I have access to. And so I have a, a column for, you know, the person's name, the person's username, because not everyone uses a, a long name on Twitter, a timestamp for the tweet, which I find really helpful. That's how I sort it. So I can see the, the, see them in chronological order, the link to the tweet, and then the, the, the text of the tweet. So I never have to open Twitter to read these. They're all in a Google sheet and we just kind of mark them off as we go. And it, it does it all automatically. And so it, it just runs every 10 or 15 minutes, I think. And anytime I open that sheet, there's new stuff in there and we can just kind of go through it. So it's a, it's a very automated system. Uh, we use a similar system on a bunch of different shows on Relay to just collect questions and comments and stuff. And doing it manually is just a really time consuming and you miss stuff because you don't remember how far you scrolled back or, you know, the spreadsheets catches everything. So I feel confident. These are all the questions people are asking. Um, so I'll put, I'll put a link. If you haven't checked out Zapier, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a really cool service. Yeah. I'm very grateful for it because, uh, as Steven said, it would be a real pain to try and go through all, uh, all the tweets one by one. I did that for the Apple event for the last couple of days, answering user questions. And, uh, after a couple of days, I'm like, this, this is, this is terrible, yeah. and I'm definitely <laughs> missing people's questions. <laughs> so it's great. Yeah, it's easy to do. So yeah, it's it's super helpful. So I think that does it for this week's query. You can find show notes this week with links to everything we've spoken to. Relay.fm slash query slash 11. Uh, like we just talked about, you can ask questions on Twitter. Now you know how we collect those. Uh, you want to use the hashtag AskQuery. In the meantime, you can find Serenity on Twitter at Saturn, S-E-T-T-E-R-N, and find her writing, a ton of writing. I don't know how you, you output so much stuff. It boggles my <laughs> mind. Uh, over at imore.com. You can find me on Twitter as ISMH, and I write the much lower volume, 512pixels.net. Until next week, Serendi, say goodbye. A plus tard. Adios. <laughs>